Greetings, and welcome to Talking Who to You, a podcast dedicated to the Big Finish audio adventures of Doctor Who. My name is Kevin Kozer, and I'm here with my co-host, J.G. McQuarrie. Say hi, J.G. Hey there, Kevin. How are you doing this week? I'm doing fantastic, especially because we have another co-host this uh, episode. Anthony Strand is back. Hi, Kevin and J.G. Thanks so much for having me again. No problem. Uh, It's been a long time since we've had a guest on. Glad you could be back, and glad you could do it covering a story I know you love. I do, absolutely. One of my, I'd say probably top ten, big finish for me. I'd go up higher. I'd say this is top five. This is, we're covering this week, Doctor Who and the Pirates. Uh, Jacqueline Rayner's story where it is a historical with Doctor and Evelyn encountering a band of pirates nested within a meta story that they are telling to one of Evelyn's students. It's a fascinatingly strange experiment in Doctor Who. I love what it's attempts so much and its ambition. There's also a very, like, within this sort of meta-narrative, there's a very special twist to episode three that I'm sure J.G. is dying to get into <laughs> when he gives us his uh, impression of the story. Well, yeah, I, I'm so happy that this is one of your uh, top five stories. Uh, this is one of my bottom five stories. Um, I'm Whoa. afraid I, I absolutely hate it and i will i will be uh, completely upfront about this it's because uh firstly i absolutely loathe and despise musicals and i hate with a burning passion uh gilbert and sullivan who who sort of exemplify the absolute worst of all sort of anything in music uh, you know it, it's just unbearable to me so this i mean this was always going to be a story which had a, a steep mountain to climb with me and i'm afraid it, it doesn't even get the first step in the mountain it's just it's terrible for me but it will be interesting at least to have a discussion with two people who are very passionate about it and um and one who is rather uh less so i think it's fair to say yeah i think we should uh, get right into the gilbert and sullivan stuff so like as i was sort of alluding to before episode three is almost entirely pastiches of Gilbert and Sullivan songs as sort of the Doctor... I mean, not much happens in episode three, really. It's just the Doctor sort of singing against pirates. And uh, we get then a little bit of more of the meta-narrative as part of it, too. I, we'll talk about, I guess, the overall structure later. But it's hard to really talk about the musical stuff because as distinctive as it is, I mean, it really does depend on how much you like Gilbert and Sullivan because it is direct homage Literally these same songs, some of the same lyrics, just slightly altered to fit the story. It's bizarre, and I kind of love it for what it's trying to do, though I definitely love the rest of the story more than that part, because I'm, I'm a lover of musicals, but I'm not the biggest Gilbert and Sullivan fan. I think they're fine in a sort of cheesy way, but yeah, it's, the musical itself doesn't do much for me, as much as it's doing for the story in general. But I guess, uh, Anthony, what's your opinion on the music? Well, I think you're right that it probably does depend on how much you like Gilbert and Sullivan. Um, I, I don't know their shows that well, you know? I mean, I've seen Pirates of Penzance once years ago. So, of course, everyone knows uh, I am the very model of a modern major general, which is the first mm-hmm. song that they do here. And I think that that's, like, a, a thrill that the rest of the episode doesn't quite match up to. Because I don't know those songs. Mm-hmm. Like, Jacqueline Rayner writes some very funny lyrics, and... The actors all seem like they're having a good time. Colin Baker especially seems like he's having Mm -hmm. a blast. Oh, yeah. So, like, I do think it's very funny and entertaining, but I'm not getting the, like, oh, they're referencing this song. Oh, you know, that is parallel to this part of the actual show. You know, like, I I don't know that stuff, but I think there's enough here that it's just... No one has ever done anything like this in Doctor Who before. So there's just this weird visceral charge of 
Here's Colin Baker starring in Doctor Who, the Gilbert and Sullivan musical for some reason. Which is a weird enough and fun enough idea to sustain one episode really well. And I'm glad they didn't try to get four out of it. Oh, for sure, yeah. This could only have been done over the course of the 20 minutes and change that they do it for. And I do think it does lose a bit of a charge after that first number. The very monomajor of Gallifrey and Buccaneer as it is, is so dense with lyrics and references and in-jokes that it's the most impressive. And then it's much more straightforward pastiches. Um, I've, see, I was actually in the sort of student production of Pirates of Penzance and don't remember it 100% well, but those songs from that one are familiar. Don't know the other Gilbert and Sullivan's really at all. But uh, I mean, yeah, they sound like very straightforward from the little memory I have of them. It's like very more straightforward adaptations. And it is just more of the charge of the unusualness of it rather than anything as inventive as that first song. So, I mean, yeah, it's very funny because it's interesting and unique. But I think, and I'll sort of expand it to how this sort of story is structured overall, which is so important to why it's, like, so interesting. Like, the way they sort of couch this very tragic and sad story that would be very much more dour Doctor Who story into a very fun and light adventure is so fascinating. And the musical is just sort of a last-ditch attempt to sort of crank the lightness, like, up to 10 before it comes way far down in episode, well, the beginning of episode four. And then it sort of comes in crests and waves after that. Well, and even in episode three, um, you mentioned Evelyn, or Evelyn, sorry, Evelyn student, Sally. Um, We don't really know up to that point why the Doctor and Evelyn are telling her this story. And then we find out through a song, like she starts singing about how she's experienced tragedy also. And um, the actress, Helen Goldwyn, has a gorgeous voice, so I, we also learn why they cast her, I think. <laughs> but um, r- remind me, are either of you guys Buffy the Vampire Slayer fans? No. Nope. Okay, okay. Um, there's a musical episode of that called Once More with Feeling, where all of the characters in town are cursed to have to sing their feelings. And that reveal with Sally, where she starts singing about how she can relate to the story, reminds me so much of that Buffy episode. Um, so I think that's really effective in that way that like through song, we're learning more about this character and I almost feel like that's why they did the whole musical thing for, for that reveal. I suspect that probably is true. And I, I will say that for all that, by the way, I think the other uh, musical, which is being referenced here is the Mikado. I think that's where the other songs come from. Um, but I will say given my utter, utter hatred of these songs, um, I do think that this is doing exactly what Doctor Who is supposed to do. It's taking two worlds which are basically completely separate entities and sort of colliding them together just to see what happens. And I think it does do that extremely well. The fact that I don't warm to it or that I don't react to it is is very much my problem, not a problem with the play. And I I do think it's that exploration of possibilities. I think that's what Doctor Who is so good at. And I do think that this play does absolutely achieve that. And by having this sort of third episode, which is, is caught up with the, the Gilbert and Sullivan aspects of it, it is doing something which is absolutely unique. But I also think it's, I think it's really interesting because it's, it's doing something aesthetically that is very different because there, there are so many sort of different aesthetic approaches to Doctor Who. Uh, but this one is doing arguably the most neglected of all, which is that kind of John Nathan Turner love of light entertainment. 
And that is probably the most neglected kind of aesthetic, especially in things like sort of Big Finish or, or the new show when it's been brought back by Russell T. Davis. It's not really something that is part, you know, most people are ashamed of that. You know, when, you, when people talk about uh, Time in the Rani or Delta and the Bannerman or whatever, that's, it's rarely in glowing terms. But it's that pantomime aesthetic. It's that musical aesthetic. And it's very much kind of that John Nathan Turner kind of thing. And so it's really interesting to see a play which is trying to explore that. I, I personally dislike it, but I, I absolutely praise this play for trying to do something with that aesthetic in a way that almost no other TV episode or, or audio ever really does. I mean, I can see why Big Finish doesn't return to that aesthetic often, because the times it has returned to the aesthetic, you get things like Banga Banga Boom, which are oh, dreadful. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so, I mean, yeah, no other really attempt to sort of capture that really feels good but um yeah this is this is really interesting but the thing about that light entertainment is that it sort of loops into like what's the darker stuff that's happening underneath and i love how much it's sort of given to you in drips and drabs and like even before you get to jem's death in the story uh they've already sort of let it slip they even sort of let it slip and sort of prepped you for it via describing him and but it's still sort of couched in the lighter part of the story so it becomes a sort of shadow overhanging it and then there's also things like uh, Sally's sort of car accident which they go into any detail about we don't know who died in it just that she was in a car accident and someone died and she survived and people blame her for it and she blames herself for it more than anyone but there's no other details about it and we don't sort of need that other detail and that's what's so fascinating about it is the darker stuff sort of lurks underneath. It's never... And, yeah, going back to Jem, his death is completely off-screen. We hear the beginning of his torture, and Evelyn can't go on to recount it, so it's left completely, like, unspoken of. And we just see the after-effects then later. So it's this very sort of interesting thing where, in order to keep up this sort of facade of a light story, the dark stuff is sort of pushed underneath, and the contrast from that is just so fascinating. And that's what I think is so brilliant about the story, I saw Rainer plays the two halves against each other. So you do have this so light and fluffy um, surface that gets just lighter and fluffier as the story goes on. But then the darker undercurrent gets stronger and stronger as well. And then it, it sort of reaches the climax. And then uh, a little talk about episode four later, which I think is the least successful part of the story, at least sort of the middle part of that episode. But yeah, I've been talking for way too long about this, but I just love how those two halves intersect. Well, I agree, and I think um, one of the strongest points, actually, for me, if I can mention something from episode four briefly, um, is when Jem dies, and Evelyn just sorrowfully says, I can't relive this, not with the songs and the quips. And it's like this admission that this light structure cannot contain this story. Right, that uh, there is a dark story here, and for all their efforts at lightness, they cannot really contain that darkness. Um, and I think that kind of ends up being what the whole thing is about. To to the point where actually, when I told my wife I was going to talk about this episode with you guys, she said, "Oh no, that one's so sad." And I said, "It's hilarious," and we're both right. Like, let's <laughs> yeah. say, yeah, you're both true. It's this like one of the saddest and one of the sort of funniest. Uh, well. Miles are the funniest, of course, to person to person, but in my opinion, one of the right. funniest Doctor Who stories. And then, of course, it's one of the saddest. You can't really uh, 
disagree on that. It's yes, you can. It goes into this very horrifying detail. <laughs> oh, I mean, more people die in other stories, but I, I think the detail they go into when seeing a guy's like tongue ripped out is like what Doctor Who story would do that. <laughs> I mean, you can try to other examples, but this is definitely sort of the upper like range of sad Doctor Who stories. I'm disinclined to agree, you'll be surprised to discover. Um, but I think it's because it spends too long focusing on the lightness. I don't think it can carry the tonal shift to move to the darkness, and I think that's one of the reasons this play doesn't really work for me. I, I don't feel any sadness either towards Jim or, or really towards the whole car crash part of the plot. Because, I mean, I, I sort of... I do agree that... Um, when you say, you know, the, the lightness of the story can't contain sort of the darkness that lurks at the heart of it. Um, I do agree with that, but that doesn't make me think, ah, so here's the contrast. It makes me think, ah, this is completely the wrong approach to take for trying to tell this kind of tale. And it, I don't know, that, that whole thing, I mean, I, I feel desperately sorry for Maggie Stables because she does so much good work trying to sell Jim's death, but it completely fails to land. And it... it it's not her fault. She's really brilliant in that moment. But I think the thing is, is that you're sort of saying that we get little hints of it sort of going throughout the previous three episodes, but I don't think they're hints at all. They keep saying, oh, something tragic's happened. Oh, something tragic's happened. Oh, something tragic's happened. And I just got odd enough. So eventually when we get to it, it's like, yeah, we know. This is not, there's no reveal it, it, because we keep getting told about it. And, and for that reason, I don't think the drama of this episode lands at all. And as I say, absolutely not Maggie Stable's fault. She's she's brilliant. And Colin Baker's brilliant as well. You know, he he's able to do that kind of poignant episode four stuff so brilliantly and he'll go on to do it brilliantly again. But but here it it just I, I don't feel that the drama works. It, it it swamps out the the lightness, but the lightness also swamps out the drama and, and the two feel tonally completely disconnected for me. Well I think the fact that they keep sit like not even foreshadowing, as you say, JG. They don't foreshadow Jim's death. They just say something terrible happened to Jim, and then we find out what it is, and he's dead, and we know he's dead. I think the fact that we know he's dead the whole time is kind of the point. Like, they're setting up that this is a very sad story, and that's why they're making it happy. I think they wouldn't need all the, all the silliness and all the I'm-changing-the-details goofiness and all this stuff if this wasn't something that had affected Evelyn so personally. So I think they're putting all their cards on the table up front and saying, this is a sad story, but we're going to tell it in a silly way and see if that makes it happier. And in the end, it doesn't. But I don't think that that means the effort wasn't worthwhile for me. I think, I guess to sort of undercurrent, I think the real sort of tragedy that really is a reveal, like the gem stuff, yeah, it's not much of a reveal. It's more of like, it's almost sort of like a red herring reveal where you feel like it's going to be the big twist and it's sort of weird that they've spoiled it in episode two, but it does sort of this weird sort of cloud overhanging. And but there's the hints of this bigger thing, and that bigger thing is uh, Sally's suicide that are traveling back in time to prevent. And I think that uh, is a very effective reveal that caught me off guard both the first and the second time listening. I mean, yeah, I mean, me too. I, yeah, I could not remember why they're telling it to Sally. I just remember there was something. I can remember the car crash part, but I couldn't remember exactly why they're telling it until they got to the sort of the letter at the end. And then that, uh, I was forgetting something, and I forgot to talk because we wouldn't talk about the music, but they get the first hints of that when Sally breaks in into the musical numbers and the musical sort of bleeds into the quote-unquote real world. And 
you have her sort of singing at her own loneliness. And that's when it sort of dawned on me and sort of remembered, oh, that's right. This is what the story is really about. But it led to that sort of final reveal that they're sort of here to save her specifically through the story. It just has so much weight for me. And I just love the idea of like the power of storytelling and this the idea that if one person cares for you, you can go on. And I don't know, the sort of story idea of suicide prevention, it can be really cheesy and really awful if done poorly. But I think there's enough of a touch to the story that even like the actual story being told, uh, a lot of it's resting on Colin Baker and Maggie Stables and Helen Goldwyn's performance. That at least make that element really land for me. And how of sort of a humanist story the meta narrative sort of takes by the end of it. Yeah, I I agree. I th- I tend to think that all of the Sally material is more effective than the Gem material. I mean, Gem is basically just Jim Hawkins from Treasure oh, yeah, Island. Sure. Yeah. Right. Like yeah. he's not he's not really a character. He's he's an excuse to tell this Sally story, and an excuse to have an effect on Evelyn, a character we actually do care about. So, I mean, I I would agree with you, JG, that like the the characterizations in the pirate story aren't this story's strength. I just also don't think it's what Rainer is concerned about. Well, I think that's probably fair enough. I mean, the characters, I mean, depending on how generous and or not generous you're feeling, the characters in the pirate side of thing are definitely archetypes or stereotypes or ciphers, depending on how far down that uh, road you want to go. And yeah, you're right, of course, uh, Jim is a- absolutely Hawkins. There's, there's no doubt about that at all. But um, I don't care <laughs> about the whole suicide thing so the, the neither neither element of this works for me i don't know why i can't really explain it i i agree with everything both of you have said i i absolutely agree that that's where where rainer's focus is i absolutely you know think that the the the, the story is sally's story and all this other stuff is essentially just distraction from it that's absolutely true and you know Helen Goblin is giving a good performance, but none of it lands for me. I cannot explain it. And I, I, I'm 100% sure that you guys are right. I, this is definitely my failing. But I felt completely uninvested in her story. I, I don't care. And, and yeah, we're, I know I understand we're supposed to feel sympathy for her. And she's, she's, has, you know, she's suicidal because of the car accident and all the rest. I, I get it just don't care about it and i i'm at loss to explain that because at least in the fourth episode that's that's when the drama of the episode kicks in you know that's the that's the bit that has to do the heavy lifting so even if you think even if one thinks that the first three episodes are, are sort of light-hearted nonsense in order to get to the the whole point of the exercise it's a long way to get to that point but anyway if 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 that's how it is <laughs> then okay fine then the drama of it rests in the fourth episode and um again all the performances are good all the you know, it it all looks good on paper, but none of it lands. It's so airless somehow. I, I I'm at lost to explain why I react to it like this. I I don't. I actually do want to get into episode four a bit because when you say it all episode four and the drama kicks in, it also rests on that. It's really the end of episode four, and I think I will get into the one thing I really dislike about the story on second listening, especially, is how that sort of middle section. You have the very big climax episode four at the beginning, which is. Uh, the first reveal of Jem's death. And yeah, it's very expected, so it's not really a reveal, reveal, but I just love how sort of Evelyn, or rather Maggie Stables, plays it, that I think it's effective for me in some way. But then you have a very long comic section between the Doctor and Captain Swan, which is just, it like almost made me like <laughs> hate the story a little bit and come onto your side because it just feels so off. Like after having that big sad moment 
and then you also have this undercurrent of Sally's story bubbling beneath, and then that just sort of gets shown to the side, and you have a bunch of weirdly silly scenes. And like that doesn't work like the silliest scenes between them before, because that was still had the sort of push and pull of what was really going on beneath it. Now we sort of, everything's out in the open by this point, and we're still going through the motions of the very comic and camp pirate story. And then we get to the end, and then the real story comes back again in full force, and it's effective again. And that, and that's uh, my biggest complaint, I guess, is that sort of section right there, which seems very sort of misconceived. Uh, and you can also feel them sort of rushing through it. There's a lot of sections where the Doctor sort of breaks into the story and says, okay, I'll skip this part so we can get to the end. And it does feel like the story's running out of steam a bit until it gets to a very, at least for me, powerful climax. But, yeah, until then, it's a little touch and go at the end there. Yeah, I can see. Isn't that the scene where the doctor claims that he learned how to climb trees from Tarzan? Yeah, that and the dragon that's a lizard and the pin the tail on the donkey stuff. It then none of that works for me because the humor of the story it's it's so camp and silly, but it works because you know there's something you're not seeing. There's something being obscured from you, like even from the jump, like ten minutes in, I want to say. There's a mention of one-eyed Trent, and then Evelyn pulls back from it, and it's like, no, you're, I'm not supposed to mention him yet. And so this sort of fascinating sort of mystery game is playing out. Um, what is she hiding? What is reference? What is sort of coming up that you're not, don't know about that plays on and on and on. But by that point in the story at the end, uh, it's everything's on the table and it just feels like stalling for time when you come back to the campy humor. Yeah, I can see that. Um, I mean, I, I enjoyed it still for what it was, but I can definitely see how it's more cognitive dissonance than earlier where they're actually going for cognitive dissonance here. It's just kind of awkward. Yeah. I think that's the thing that I was talking about earlier, that the way that it can't carry off the, the sort of tonal shift. And, and I, I was mentioning the shift from sort of the, the comedy to the drama, but then it's going from the drama to the comedy back to the drama again. And it's, it, for me, that feels very sort of symptomatic of, of the whole thing and, and sort of how I approach it because yeah, it's, it's like, however, it's trying to move between these kind of two very sort of different modes of telling a story. Neither kind of really managed to to translate. And and Red Jasper himself is, I mean, quite a, the whole pin the tail on the donkey thing is just, I'm not going to swear, but it's really, really, really bad. Um, it just, uh, but even putting that aside, Red Jasper is, is a weird character and he's also sort of very, very representative of that sort of tonal shift that I don't think the play can pull off because for three quarters of it, he's a harmy hearties, oh, I'd be right, my lover, kind of cliche. And then, but then suddenly we're supposed to take him terribly seriously because he kills someone. Um, but also he's still a funny pirate at the end because of the pin the tail on the donkey thing. And it, 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 it doesn't work. And, and, you know, Bill Oddie, I, I, I like Bill Oddie. I loved him in the goodies. Uh, I don't know if that's really a thing Americans are aware of, but British people probably oh, are. I actually... I watched the goodies because I loved Monty Python and just like wanted to see all seventies British comedy as a kid in the nineties. <laughs> oh, that's cool. That's very, Most very cool indeed. So I, I love the goodies and, and I, I, I he's an ornithologist now. That's that's really what he is. He doesn't really act anymore. He's sort of a nature guy. And and he's he, Oh wow, I had no idea. Yeah, he's he's great at that. He's he's full of passion about kind of animals and about particularly birds. And he's wonderful at that. And he's good at doing a kind of horror pirate. And that's that's fine, but it, the, the idea that we're then supposed to take him seriously because he actually turns around and kills someone just falls so flat for me because we're never given any and like like with the limpest excuse imaginable. Oh, he's really mad, 
really that's the best you could come up with to try try and explain this there's no like there's no layering of character there's no sense that he's putting on the is just because it's it's hiding something deeper no 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 he's just mad it's such weak characterization oh i mean i think he's putting on the harhars because this is evelyn and the doctor evelyn and the doctor telling a light-hearted pirate story right i mean i think that's part of that that whatever real red jasper they encountered was not a caricature was not a lighthearted goofball then i think i think more of that should have come through in the either the performance or the writing then i i do agree that i think obviously we're seeing everything from their perspective and they're unreliable narrators explicitly so during during this and I, I yeah i think you're right absolutely but but that doesn't come through in the performance and it doesn't come through in the writing so it, for me that doesn't work that's that's not a strong enough excuse to kind of justify this kind of shift to the fact that we're supposed to be horrified by his actions well he's a pirate what did you think he was going to do you know it, i don't know it it, it doesn't work we there, there needs to be more there maybe maybe it's melody maybe maybe he's too invested in the hahars that to, to sort of really suggest any nuance i will say that I find that's just really unsettling because the the distance between the harhars and the murdering is uncanny for me. And this is a very personal reaction, obviously, but when it switches, it just like freaks me out <laughs> because yeah, me too. It's such a cartoonish character, and then suddenly during these uh, very the very casual murder with the pistol that happens in the first couple episodes, like is already kind of unsettling. The Especially the scene where he rips out a guy's tongue, and you hear it in very, very visceral sort of detail, which I think they kind of usually goes for the violence that like with squishy sounds and very icky sounds, and it's that is like it's extremely unsettling for me. And I can understand why it wouldn't work for everyone, like UJG, but it just for me that the clash between them is just I find very unsettling to a degree and i don't i don't know can't say why it works for me it just does and i think sort of that's what it's going for as well i agree with you completely i think i think that tonal dissonance between the the comedy pirate and this is what an actual pirate is like i think that works wonderfully and i will say i think bill Oddie, like in the comedy parts is hilarious even the pin the tail on the donkey thing which is pretty dumb he really digs into it like <laughs> Yeah, I feel like his enthusiasm for that even saves that bit for me a little bit. But um, if he's maybe a little less successful in the serious parts, I think that just the shocking nature of them helps, like allows them to work for me. I don't agree. <laughs> that's no surprise. <laughs> that's no surprise at this point. <laughs> um, yeah, no, I, I, I do agree. I, I, I agree that that's what I, I, I think they're going for. But I, I, I don't find that it quite works. But I do agree also that uh, the, the comedy pirate stuff does land. He can play a comedy pirate, you know. And this is. I think it's also interesting that um, Bill, uh, Bill Oddie has sort of. I think. If I remember correctly, he's the first one of the goodies who has turned up in Big Finish. But uh, Graham Garden will be along later on as well as the meddling monk at one point. So they've got two thirds of the goodies to turn up, and and that's that's so great. I I absolutely love that. I I, I hope I hope Tim Brooke Taylor turns up at some point as well. Tim Brooke Taylor was in the Zygon who fell to earth. Ah, brilliant! I did I completely forgotten that. Ah, you're right. So in fact, they have all three goodies. Oh, that's fantastic. I I, I love that. I, I'm such a big fan of the goodies. So it's always a joy to just be able. To to hear them sort of turn up and and do these things so um yeah brilliant that's that, that's 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 made me slightly happier and and the fact that i've had to sit through this doesn't feel like such a pain anymore 
I'm glad I'm glad you brought that up because I actually had that in my notes. All three goodies have worked for Big Finish, and I didn't know if, I should I didn't know if it would be I, worth bringing up. So I should have done my checking more thoroughly. I guess I just like like, like by the time we got oh, I, I'm so sorry. I know I'm bagging on about it, but the, the time we got to the end of episode four, I was thinking, oh, you know, I'd rather listen to Minuet in Hell than listen to this again. I'd rather watch mm. the Twin Dilemma and Time in the Rani than have to listen to this again. And it's just like it's like oh god, I wow. can't even be able to I can't even research it properly before the before the podcast so that's yeah but oh that's great you have absolutely cheered me up then oh good <laughs> i'm just smiling and nodding to all those goodies references but um you should um, you should watch the goodies kevin it's very silly uh yeah uh, if i have ever time to watch older tv because i'm watching so much newer tv i'll definitely give it a look but uh, yeah, it's very hard to talk about a story, I guess, when you're so at odds with it. So I guess we've been lucky we were so in sync with these other episodes. Because, yeah, it's hard to think of new ways to tackle it besides I like this and I didn't. Well, I think the thing, I think the thing is, I think, you're, I think you're right. I think we have been sort of, we're generally quite consistent in the way that we approach uh, Big Finish Place. And our opinions, they've not always been exactly in sync, as you mentioned earlier. But they've, they've come up to the point where at least our, our disagreements haven't been sort of major disagreements. This is the first episode that we've had that has had a like, real kind of down the middle split in, in the way that we look at it. And I think, um, I think that is kind of interesting because... I mean, for all that I say that I, I, you know, I hate Gilbert and Sullivan and I hate musicals and, and all that kind of stuff. And I know somebody will email in and say, but Gilbert and Sullivan isn't musicals, it's operetta. That's true. I hate operetta as well. So that doesn't help. Um, <laughs> I also think it's interesting because I do, I do generally have very warm feelings towards this. I, I, I think Jacqueline Renner does a really, really good job in terms of the writing. I think all the things that she sets out to do um i don't i don't think the tonal shift works but i think in terms of the pastiche in terms of the way that she's kind of constructing the play in terms of the meta narrative i do think she does a good job of that and so it's sort of pull it round to so that so that we're sort of pushing in the same direction again um i do think all of that stuff works and i think particularly in episode one which i i think it does a very good job of establishing how the play is going to work. Um, so there's lots of like, like all the different names that come up, like the Jim Jimson and the, the Phil Filson and all that kind of, that's, yeah. that's quite funny. Yeah, I think that's really funny. Yeah, I, I, like, I like that. That, 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 that appealed to me in, in, in a way that it's like, like this, this is quite witty. This is somebody struggling to find names for characters and put bits together. And, and, and so, and it's sort of, it's sort of, I guess it's also like a sort of meta commentary in the writing process, when, where somebody's trying to come up with characters and, and slot them together, and and so it's a meta narrative happening inside a meta narrative about a narrative. So there's some, there's some sort of textual cleverness going on there, and I, and I mean, I think we've mentioned before in the podcast that we're both big, big fans of Jacqueline Rayner as a writer. We think she's she's good, and and I think qualitatively and sort of objectively speaking, she more or less manages to pull off uh, what she's trying to do here tonal shift aside so i think i mean if we want if we want to try and find common ground i think that's probably where the common ground between us is going to lie i i do think she's very good at being able to construct this and it's not a puzzle box constructed it's not a, a stephen moffat kind of thing it's just it's just really intricately layered and, and worked out methods and, that, and particularly that's very effective i i think in episode one she, she really does land that I think definitely meta-narrative is sort of a pet thing for Jacqueline Rayner. She does it very well in a lot of different stories. Um, for starters, there's 
what is still my favorite Bernie Summerfield audio, the first one, Oh No It Isn't, which is adapted from a novel by Paul Cornell. But, uh, and I don't know the novel exactly, but I know Rainer must have had a touch on it because it dives into sort of pet peeves so well, it uh, traps the character inside of a pantomime play and then plays around with that a lot. And then there's other, uh, there's the Doomwood Curse, and uh, which does a lot with like sort of making, turning novels into real life. There's uh, the Suffering, which sort of takes the Companion Chronicles format of a companion telling a story and has two companions trying to tell the same story and does something like, which is Doctor and Evelyn here, where they switch around and conflict each other a bit. And that's very funny. So she loves playing around with these sort of ideas of meta narrative. And this is what she almost does it like best in the story is playing around with that sort of pet love of hers. And so I'm really glad to sort of, whenever she delves into that sort of experiment and have fun with it, it always brings a smile to my face. Well, and um, did any, have any of you guys read the Missy Chronicles book? No. No, I can't say that I have. Well, she has a story in there which is called Girl Power. And that entire story is all um, texts, emails, etc., between the Doctor and Missy and Nardle, and at a couple points, Jane Austen and Agatha Christie. <laughs> okay. <laughs> that just very much fits in with that, with that meta-narrative that you're talking about, Kevin, where it's like, it gets into, like, writers writing, but also in, like, modern media that these writers never used, and that becomes, like, part of the joke, and it's it's something that only Jacqueline Rayner would have written, I think. <laughs> yeah, she loves the idea of, like, how we tell stories and how that inflects on the story we're telling, and I think that's so fascinating, and I think what makes Doctor Who and the Pirates work so well is there is no true unreliable narrator, not in the story Doctor and Evelyn are telling, which obviously we said Jasper never talked like the way they're depicting him. Whoever the real Jasper is, he did not act like that at all. And The real Swan may have acted close to that, but he seems too simpering to be a real person. And that's sort of the point of the story, is that these aren't real. They're making them up, and sort of their vision of reality is to make a better story to tell Sally to sort of make it a sort of softer and easier thing to live through again. And sort of work through their own trauma as well, which doesn't get as firm of a button on, but is definitely part of it, is this is how Evelyn can process the own sort of awful things she's been through there. And probably like, I mean, the way she says it, it's like the worst thing she's been through, which considering she's been attacked by Daleks, I maybe would dispute a bit. <laughs> but we'll, we'll buy into that part and say this is the worst thing she's been through and her story where she couldn't save everyone. And I just find that so fascinating as well. But then just pull back a bit the story of the Tony Sally, the meta narrative itself isn't reliable because they sing during it. Like, and this is one, something I forgot to touch on. When we were first talking about the singing way back at the beginning of this episode. They like do this very sort of fourth wall breaking thing of having musical numbers in what's supposed to be the realist narrative. And it's so, I mean, like in keeping with the traditions of sort of modern modernist storytelling and so there is no solid ground there's no real realism to sort of hang your hat on it's all sort of broken down and it's all sort of like it none of it can be real and you're very aware you're listening to something manufactured and fictionalized 
which is so fascinating to me that even both layers sort of get pulled into that. And even like when, say, the doctor is singing, there are backup singers. And so in is the doctor stopping to tell Sally, now I'm singing the backup part or something. Oh, you know yeah. what I mean? Oh, yeah. Like in the quote unquote real world, it's supposed to just be the doctor and evil and saying all of these things. Right. But um, to the point where I think Sally calls out Evelyn for using the same voice for every sailor on the ship or something at some point. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, like I'm just going to say that voice is uh, Timothy Sutton though, not, Maggie Stables, and that sort of adds right. to it how, yeah, both layers have different sort of levels of meta play going on, and yeah, you keep going now, I just want to point that out. Well, no, yeah, but that's just what I was going to say is to the point where, like, even the, like, they could not possibly be telling this story to Sally the way that it's presented, like you said. There's just so many things that would require them to stop and do things differently, and uh, you know, obviously there's sound sound effects in the meta narrative that they Sally would not be getting and so on which actually speaking speaking of the sound effects i think that the sound design for this story is just excellent mm-hmm. i think things like at the beginning the sinking ship sounds so great um you know when they're on the deck for the first time and the sailors are all just kind of making a lot of noise it all sounds so real so, like it, it helps the silliness i think that the environment feels so fleshed out. You know, we can hear seagulls and all this stuff, and it just, clearly they put a lot of work into making it sound like, you know, the audience's idea of a pirate ship. And I think it's great. There's just so much going on. Well, I will agree with that, and that does mean that I actually get to say something nice about this play. Wait, I, I do think the sound design is excellent, and I think it does do a very good job of recreating that kind of environment, but recreating it very much in the mode of, you know, like a pantomime or a kind of theatrical production. Nobody's kidding on that this is exactly what it would be like to be at the high seas, but it's got all the elements that it's trying to pastiche down absolutely right. And that's how it should be. This is not some sort of for realistic kind of approach. It's meant to be this kind of grandiose over the top kind of production. And that's exactly what it is. So yeah, we have the waves, we have the seagulls, we have the barrels and the creaking of the wood as the ship sways from side to side and all the rest of it. I do think all that stuff is extremely well put together. It's an excellently produced play. So I I, I 100% agree with you there. This is definitely the most sonically immersive thing Big Finish has done, which is so impressive that like they really get you into it in such a like great degree. Like you said, all the sound effects, but also the music, and it really contributes to that sort of very <laughs> okay. But um, <laughs> the atmosphere. I like you are you are right about the music. The music is extremely well done, unfortunately. Yeah. <laughs> I can understand not liking it on principle, but I'm glad you at least acknowledge it's well done. <laughs> oh, no, absolutely. No, 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 it is. It's, it's very well done. Like, like even the sea shanty version of the Doctor Who theme at the end. That's like, that's like. I mean, I, I'm long on record as saying that Big Finish have never done a good version of the Doctor Who theme, but that's as close as they've come. They absolutely do that great. So, you know, now all of that is good. All of the musical design is good. All of the, the ways that the songs function, the... the, the all of the music is, is extremely well put together. Absolutely, that's true. What a shame it's so terrible. <laughs> <laughs> uh, 
So would you would you take this sea shanty version of the theme over the dance club remixes from the rap? <laughs> that, yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, just just for asking that question, we're never going to invite you back again. Oh, good, <laughs> thank you. Yeah, no, yeah. I would definitely take this over the 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 the, uh, the, the rave version of the theme tune, but I uh, I would also take it over their really really bad like Paul McGann version of the theme tune, or their attempt at a military march for the War Doctor, or or whatever. So yeah, uh, yeah, definitely. Oh, I, had, I haven't heard any of those War Doctor audios, so I had no idea that existed, but sounds awful. And it's worth bringing up again, since we'll never cover them on this podcast, our review of them is Skip Them. <laughs> yeah, and not just for the theme tune. There are many other excellent John Hurt performances to enjoy. So, um, speaking of performances, what did you guys think about Nicholas Pegg as Captain Swan? Because he's very silly, like it's a very swishy, silly kind of, you know, floppy performance. But I think he's hilarious in this. And I'm not always impressed with Nicholas Pegg's acting. But here I think he's really having a blast and it rubs off on the audience. He's definitely having a blast. Actually, this is, I, mm, I'm very mixed about it. I think he fits it very well. But he's also the most annoying part of the play for me, by a good margin, by a really good sure. margin. And it's hard for me to sort of get over how, like, terrible, intentionally terrible, what terrible the character is for me to really enjoy him. But yet, there's, I don't know, there's some funny stuff, but, like, a lot of his, I guess, big material, especially in that section of episode, of the last episode that I mentioned I don't like, and then and everything beforehand is, I don't know, it's... It fits it well. It just doesn't... He is good. He himself is doing exactly what the script asks of him and doing it to a T. I just... Mm, I think... Sw- yeah, I think Swan could have been toned down a bit. And I have a feeling JG will echo that sentiment and more. <laughs> well, I think the thing... I think the thing with him is that he's playing a character that's obviously meant to be annoying and that's that's fine but it's a very thin line um between playing a character who's annoying and just being annoying let's call it the the edward furlong syndrome you know edward furlong in terminator 2 plays a really annoying kid really well but maybe just a little bit too well and it, it's kind of that's how I kind of, I kind of feel about swan he's he's obviously meant to be incredibly irritating or whatever and he sells that all too convincingly and yeah i mean the the performance is what it's meant to be i mean there's no like i i agree with you anthony i i'm not always the most impressed by nicholas pegg's acting but i think he does exactly what the script requires of him here but it's such a, a thin line between you know, playing this incredibly annoying version of the character and just thinking, oh, just drown him already because you just can't bear to have to listen to him for another, you know, sort of five seconds. Like like the fact that he more or less gets his crew and his ship back at the end of the fourth episode. You think, no way on earth do you deserve for this to happen to you. Why are you still alive? Of all the people that could have died in this play, why are you still drawing breath? But here he is still drawing breath, whether we like it or not. Yeah, that's that's fair. I'm I mean I'm not going to like I don't have any great defense of him as a as a as an upstanding human being or something. But I just I I I enjoyed the 2 hours I spent listening to him worry about being a good captain, which he's not. Whereas I I would sooner chew my leg off than have to listen to him again. <laughs> I think the thing about him is that he never really finds a second mode to the character. He is constantly 
like stubbornly insisting he should be in charge even when he shouldn't be and constantly thinks the most important of himself edit and constantly thinking the best of himself and that's all there is to him there's never any deeper character and when especially when we have to spend extended time with him like later on in the story and he's just not growing or changing the way anyone else is it's very frustrating it's very just a little yeah just a little one note and that can really wear down <laughs> after a while but yeah i think the character could have worked if there was a deeper side to him if there was another uh, bit to him but the play is already two hours and five minutes long yeah it you can't really have more time to develop him i think it'd be better just to kill him off a little early and then maybe have more time on i don't know something else i, I we shouldn't i shouldn't try to write the story for them I mean, I still really like this story. It's just one thing that doesn't quite work so well for me. Yeah, I think that's probably fair enough. But I think it's also slightly odd because, well, Red Jasper aside, most of the other characters do get more dimension to them as we as we sort of experience them over the course of this, I don't know, three and a half years or whatever the running time of this play is. And and for <laughs> for some reason, he's the one character that doesn't get any... He, well, he doesn't get any depth to him. He doesn't become any more, or even any less sympathy, uh, sympathetic. He just kind of exists. And he's the only character really... I mean, like even, even for all the criticism uh, I have of Red Jasper, he does get the moment where he does suddenly allegedly become horrific um and so he gets some movement in his character we get to see him from a different perspective we never really get that with with swan and, and there's not really a lot that, that nicholas beck can do with that because it's just it is one character that starts carries on for a specific length of time and and then stops and that's that is always always going to be limiting for an actor and it's it's an unusual thing for somebody like Jacqueline Rayner to kind of miss because she's normally very good at doing those kind of characters. But in this one instance, yeah, it, it's definitely something the character is lacking. Yeah. I mean, I totally understand all of that. And it's not like I, you know, have a Captain Swan poster hanging on my bedroom wall. You so, you so dudes. But... Come on, admit it. <laughs> <laughs> you got me. You got me. <laughs> yeah, you're clearly waiting for a new big finish spinoff, Captain Swan and his adventures with Gustavo from The Rapture. Just bring back <laughs> Yeah, that's exactly what I want. cuts. Yep back out i will buy i will buy every single installment of that long-running series i can't wait for them to meet jago and lightfoot oh sad news about that but maybe with archive <laughs> recordings anything is possible yeah that's true okay so um one final thought that i had that i didn't one thing in my notes that i didn't get a chance to say was at one point when the doctor says no one ever dies in musicals Sally says, Evita, Miss Saigon, Jesus Christ Superstar. And then she says, Les Mis. But listening to this, I thought right away that she said, The Wiz. <laughs> and, I was, and I was thinking, like, I, I guess the two witches both died. Oh, Les Mis. Okay, that makes sense. I thought that was an odd choice. This is a twist on a joke. I do like the sort of idea that no one dies in musicals when there are a lot of sad musicals out there. Maybe that would have held water before the 70s but i don't know once you have andrew the weber on the scene and that sort of shift change oh even then there's really sad stuff like carousel really weird sad stuff so yeah musicals have never been that cheery and it's fun for this place where both the cliche wide open oh they're all sad (laughs) 
Anyway, maybe maybe we should maybe we should try and draw a gentle veil over this and try and and, and reach some kind of conclusion as to as to where we're going. So you guys have a much more positive um, outlook on, on on this place. So so let's 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 do a quick summary and and then I'll be rude about it and then we can we can draw a veil over everything. So so um Ke- Kevin, what, what in conclusion, what do you think is the, is the most effective aspects of this? I just don't know how I can talk about it anymore. Just the way the story sort of plays with the sort of two levels of uh, I- narrative and the way it sort of plays with sort of unreal narrator and sort of... I've been trying to avoid using this word because it's so snobby to say it, but if you know Bertolt Brecht and the term Brechtian, that's the best way I can say it, or modernist, I guess, would be the more obvious way to say it. But the way it sort of draws you into very knowing that you're listening to fiction and it pulls you out of the story, but in a way that's still emotionally connecting. It's one of the hardest needles to thread in fiction writing. It always impresses me so much when it is threaded. The way you can play with the idea of listening to a story about storytelling about storytelling and still keep an emotional through line to it. I just love that so much. And I really love how the story accomplishes it and cherish it for that reason, despite some of the flaws. Yeah, I I don't know that I could say it any better. Um, I agree with you completely, Kevin. And I don't. Anyway, I think that's probably about as much as we're likely to get out of Doctor Who and the Pirates. Kevin, let us turn to the mailbag. What do we have this week? We have another letter from returning uh, letter sender Kelly McCubbin, and he has a great story about listening to the rapture. I'm going to read it right now. Hi, gentlemen. You asked listeners least favorite stories, and it was appropriate because you happened to be reviewing mine. Let me back up. The Rapture is certainly not the worst story from Big Finish I've heard, but let me paint you a picture. My wife and I have a home we plan to retire to in Ashland, Oregon, which is about five hours' drive north of the city we live in Northern California. We occasionally go up there to spend some time, or our tradition is to listen to a new Big Finish story each way. One time we were listening to Chimes of Midnight as we passed the town of Pollard Flats. We found that pretty funny, and I do too. Anyway, so last year we were driving up at the beginning of winter and heading into the mountains around Grant's Pass. We ran into quite a snowstorm. It was late in the evening, and the snow was heavy, and visibility was incredibly poor, but it was also beautiful. Listening to Scarzo, which has become one of my favorite Big Finish stories, the drive was a little unnerving, and we were a bit tired, and Scarzo resonated. We were simply terrified in the best way. After the story drew to a close, we drove in silence for another hour, just wrapped in the experience. On the way home from the trip... We both had contracted slight colds. We had to drive early in the morning. The snow had turned to sludge. It was just a miserable drive. And we listened to The Rapture. I'm not sure I can tell you how much we hated it. I'm not sure we've recovered yet. The last trip we took, we switched to the Prisoner series. And yet, we were talking earlier about how, and I can't remember which episode, but a few episodes passed, how uh, experience listening to a big finish story can really alter your experience listening to them. Oh, hey, I wrote that letter. Them. Yeah. And I think it was on Chimes of Midnight. And then, I mean, yeah, that can definitely ruin the rapture even more for you than the rapture can already ruin itself is if it's just a miserable experience driving while listening to it. Yeah. No, and I, it, the, the punchline at the end that they stopped listening to Doctor Who audios to switch to the prisoner, uh, it just makes me sad a little bit that it's like the rapture was so bad that it ruined a big finish for them, which I'm sure not forever. Obviously, he listens to the podcast, but still. 
Well, I mean, the rapture probably is that bad. But I have to say, in, in defence of, uh, of The Prisoner, at least you picked a good one to move on to because The Prisoner series is really, really terrific. I've mentioned it before when we did our Big Finish and Beyond episode, but it is a really outstanding uh, piece of work from Big Finish. So uh, even if The Rapture was the most miserable, dreary and dreary experience that you could have had, at least it pointed you in the direction of something that you eventually got to enjoy. Yeah, that's great. I should check that out. Yeah. yeah, I want to ask you, Anthony, what is your least favorite Big Finish audio, or at least one terrible experience you had listening to one of the Doctor Who stories? I mean, you guys have you guys thoroughly savaged Minuet in Hell, which was definitely down there. There's an Eighth Doctor audio called Timeworks, which is where uh, Eighth Doctor Charlie and Karis are in like a giant clock, and basically it's just ninety minutes of everyone saying. But time <laughs> is running out of time. <laughs> Things like that. And it's like the worst, just cl- like s- cliche of what people who don't like Doctor Who think Doctor Who is like. Like it's like those Inspector Space Time on Community. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it's, it's like that, but in an actual Doctor Who story. And my wife and I were both just like, what is this? Why are they doing this? What is happening um, through the entire thing? And it was kind of fun that we both hated it so much. Yeah, I don't know if we'll get to that one, but late McGann uh, and Charlie is weird. <laughs> and it really is, runs the whole gamut from brilliant to awful stories. Yes, agreed. Yeah, there's, but, a, uh, lot of, there's a lot of chaff in there, but there's, there's some good stuff that stands out as well. But I think, uh, yeah, we'll, we'll, we'll get there in the end, of course. But um, I, I think there's definitely a sense that, that Charlie hangs around with the Eighth Doctor probably a little bit longer than the character really needs to in fact maybe quite a lot longer than the character needs to but that does also mean that we get the glorious period where she interacts with the sixth doctor and and i love charlie and the sixth doctor together i'm I'm sure we'll be covering some of those stories once we get that far forward so even if she does sort of fluctuate wildly in the quality of stories that she's in at least at least it goes somewhere yeah agreed and i i love that period too so i look forward to hearing you guys talk about it we have one more paragraph in Kelly's uh, email I wanted to bring up. Uh, he talks about how uh, the sound levels rapture are all over the place. He has a love for McCoy because while he's not my doctor, he represents something special, carrying the torch from the classic series to New Who. And how Ace is such like a model for like, new companion relationships and how they grow and change over the course of their arcs rather than being sort of static like a lot were in the classic series. But in his words... For Lord's sake, would someone tell Mr. McCoy that constant flipping from a whisper to a bellow just doesn't work on audio dramas? Many of us listen to our cars and you have to keep your hand on the volume almost constantly. The Rapture is the worst example of this phenomenon because you add a bunch of canned trance music and people trying to shout over that. Oh my word, what a headache. And yeah, I have to agree. I think I mentioned in the Rapture episode how McCoy delivers both the best and the worst performances in Big Finish. And... When he is the worst, I won't say the Raptors one was worst, but it's definitely in the lower half. And when it is the worst, it is definitely because he just has only two volumes which he speaks at, very quiet, very loud, and does all of the emoting in those volumes. Like, when he's bad, he doesn't bother doing any other work besides just changing the volume of his voice. And it is very grating sometimes. Well, I think it's quite telling that one of the stories that we praised the most in terms of McCoy's performance was The Fearmonger, uh, which I still strongly recommend that everybody goes to listen to because it really is an absolutely outstanding kind of early play from Big Finish. But he is almost 
I think almost 100% during that play, he's delivering a very, very quiet performance. Almost all of it is restrained and sort of melancholic and sort of thoughtful and considered. And there's very little kind of jumping up and down either the volume or the emotional register. Um, and the performance really, really lands. He's able to sort of deliver that very effectively. But it's it's a consistent performance. He's not trying to sort of jump between the two. And I mean, I think when it comes to the rapture, he's going to be hamstrung anyway because it's just not a very well-written story. But yeah, I mean, I don't, I don't think the performance helps there. And I don't think that there's an awful lot that, that, that can be sort of found to to sort of praise it. It's it, it's a great shame, but then there's so much about the rapture that's a great shame. It, it seems like a pity to narrow it down to just one thing. Yeah, I wasn't on that episode, but yes, the rapture is very bad. That's my, that's my opinion. I'm glad we can all agree <laughs> on that. With that sort of bow put on it, uh, if you want to send us an email, you can send us an email at talkingwhotoyou at gmail.com. You can also find us on Twitter, at TalkingWhoToYou. You can find me personally on Twitter, at KeviKo, that is K-E-V-V-Y-K-O. And uh, feel free to like, rate, review, subscribe, however you can, wherever you can, on the podcast you're listening to this on. It helps other listeners find us when you do those things, and it also helps us get nice feedback, so thank you. Well... That's it for the inglorious shipwreck that is Doctor Who and the Pirates, and I hope we never have to be wrecked upon her shores again. Next week, we are going to return to the land of the Fifth Doctor and Perry, and we are going to be covering The Church and the Crown, hopefully with a slightly more positive attitude on my behalf. We hope that you're going to join us for that, but until then, keep talking. <laughs>